Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome true crimes in history. My name is Em. <clears throat> I'm Autumn. <laughs> <laughs> and we are here to <laughs> I'm Autumn. <laughs> throat clear. I was wondering if that was going to be a burp or not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was Zen. Just to preface, it would be a burp because I found blue champagne. It's pretty sweet. I am getting a little bit of flashbacks to UV blue from high yeah, school. Absolutely. But this is much tastier it's than It's making me hot, just was. like UV blue. I know, honestly. <laughs> I just, I guess. You know what's crazy? After, so when my mom moved, we were cleaning out the house, right? This was like 20. Please don't 19? talk. You found an old ass bottle of UV blue. I found an old bottle of UV blue oh that had to God. have been at least five years old with, with this much UV left in it. Poison. I said, "Oh no, hell, bit. No, 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 no. That's got to go in the garbage." Dude, that would have been like. Remember that old show, Fear Factor? How they would like make people like, I eat gross shit? That'd be like Fear Factor. Like, take a shot of this five year old UV blue. It's probably this has been fermenting, fermenting in your closet. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, UV blue in and of itself was just fucking nasty. I cannot even imagine drinking five-year-old. You know what's crazy? Senior prom, senior prom after party. Yeah, I got a bottle of UV blue and a bottle of UV UV pink lemonade. Just, I just walked around the party drinking that. It's fucking gross, disgusting. Dude. Though I can't even say anything because I'm pretty sure that what I was drinking was like. Girl, you were shifty. I know, cause so I was drinking vodka and it was like fucking like a hundred twenty proof or some I shit slept like in that. my prom hair. All those fucking I had like a million bobby pins in my hair. Do no, I yeah. When, I woke up in the morning. I was like, cause uh, <laughs> I was with Stephanie, cause uh, yes, and then Tanner. we went back to their or we went back to Tanner's house and took all our hair down. Cause yeah, the amount of fucking bobby pins. Like I was plucking bobby pins out of my hair. Literally. Oh, uh, do you remember what's his name? Uh, the foreign exchange student that tried to freaking get you, and I was like, oh no, yeah, bitch. yeah. I pulled you away. I was yeah, like, no. I don't remember what his name was, but I remember like we were yeah, sitting no. on like the log. Or yeah, something. I was like, they had like a, a you were bonfire. so drunk. I was and he wasted. Was, he was trying to get you back to his little fucking tent. I'm I like, was. Fucking I looked at him drunk. and I looked at you. I said, mm-hmm. bro, I almost got. I, I was said, almost a victim. I literally was like, <laughs> I was not literally almost a victim. We're not going to do that today. All right, I need you to get off of me. Yeah, I don't even remember what his name was, but I do remember sitting on there and talking to him, but I don't remember what the fuck his name was. It was from, it wasn't the Italian one, it was the Spanish I one? have no, I could not fucking tell you. Because there was you. one from really Italy, there was one from Spain, I think. I, I don't remember. Me neither. I really don't remember. My... And, and I, I was so drunk friend, that also... Was it Joey's furnishing? I don't remember. I could not tell you. I really could not tell you. I have no fucking idea. Though I do remember that conversation having, and I do remember you grabbing me and pulling mm-hmm. me away. And I also remember um, my cousin yelling at uh, Keith because uh. he kept trying to get me to go back to the tent with him. And she's like, no, she's staying with me. And yeah... Because after that, I left. Natalie I was dr- almost a victim two times that <laughs> night. <laughs> Natalie, dr- yo, junior prom? Oh. Um, Dude, I didn't go to junior prom. Bitch, that was, a- I woke up in somebody's car. <laughs> I was in the back seat. Like- you've told me stories of that, and I know it was an absolute fucking shit show. Michaela so. got bit by a horse. What the fuck? Wait, because wasn't that a. Uh- I almost turned into a victim at that party by. Yeah. Dude. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, Men ain't shit. But. He also, I was so drunk at junior prom, and somebody decided to 
so I had like, you know, how we all used to have those drawstring backpacks. Yes. Yeah. So fucking Nike ones. Yes. So I had that. I had three bottles of Swedish Fish Pinnacle. <laughs> I had three <laughs> bottles of it in there. Just carrying gross. it around. Any sweet, like, fucking vodka just literally gives me flashbacks. So, gives me nightmares. I was so drunk, and somebody was like, I know how to make you throw up. I don't even remember saying that I had to throw up, but apparently I must have. If they were like, I know how to make you throw up. Literally took my backpack off, cracked open a bottle, and said, here, tip my head back, poured the liquor into my throat instantly. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it worked. <laughs> yeah. Fuck, dude. No, and that's then I, crazy. Then I got carried to somebody's car. Bro, what the fuck were we in the doing morning, in high school? I woke up in the morning, and I called Michaela. I go, bitch, where are you? Bitch, where are you? We're Wasn't leaving. <laughs> it was like seven. She's like, I just woke up with... Ew. Ass in my face. Bruh, no. That does not sound like and a And then she time. told me about the wild night like, she had after they fucking shoved me in a car. <laughs> dude, that was crazy. We had no business getting up to that, that shit in high school. But anyway, it was a wild time. Dude, I know. You were I'm really surprised crazy. I didn't end up a fucking murder victim. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I was, I, listen, at 14, that's when it started. Yeah, see, I was not crazy in high school, but I got pretty fucking wild in college because I... I was buck wild from I wasn't, high school to about 21. Yeah. I don't think we were good enough friends in high mm-hmm. school to, for me to, like, go with you places. Mm-hmm. But if we were, I knew I would have <laughs> been up to some shit in high school. Because I just never, <laughs> like, I just never knew where things were happening. It's not for my lack of mm-hmm. wanting. Mm-hmm. It was my lack of not knowing where the fuck anything was happening and having nobody to go with. When I finally got people to start going with, mm-hmm. I was fucking... I was there, and I was drunk as hell. I texted everybody, I'm like, basic party here. And then, <laughs> and then at college, once, you know, I finally got the hookup and mm-hmm. knew where shit was going on, once I got my fake ID in my hands, mm-hmm. I was drunk as fuck for five days a week, <laughs> doing wild-ass shit that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast in case anybody <laughs> I know I know the wild shit. I know you know, but they don't need to know. <laughs> oh, man. So, anyways, um, I was talking to Autumn a little bit about the case that I have for today. And this one is going to be a multi-parter. I don't know yet if it's going to be two parts or three parts. It depends on how in-depth I'm going to get with these other parts. But part one, we got some wild shit to talk about. Can't so fucking wait. I am going to preface this with trigger warnings because I, I think this case really needs them. Not that the other cases don't need them, but I think this one really needs them. Um, So trigger warnings in this case for um, discussions of hate crimes, discussions of homophobia, um, violent sexual assault, violent rape, murder. The um, fact that you attached violent to those, and I feel like every other one. I need need to preface that it is violent. That's how you know it's bad, because every other time you're just like rape, sexual assault. No, this, this time the rape is what the cause of death is. So I need to preface that it Jesus is violent. Um, and then the typical things, you know, graphic depictions of murder, um, dismemberment of a body, desecration of corpse, etc., etc. Um, also, a lot of these victims are quite young, so just keep that in mind as you listen to this too. If this is not the episode that you want to get into, well, I won't say we'll see you on the next one because the next couple episodes are probably going to be part two and part three. Oh my God. Um, I said depending on how in depth I go, I might be able to get it done in two parts, but I might not. So I'm just prefacing that this. Are we getting all of this done in part one? Yes. Everything I have in my notes right now is just part one. Okay. Um, But yeah, I might, two parts, definitely three parts, maybe. 
Um, but the case we're covering today is that of the family murders that took place in um, Adelaide in Australia. So we got an Australian case. We're going back to Australia. <laughs> I can't do an Australian accent. I'm not going to try. <laughs> any, any Aussie friends listening, I'm not going to try to butcher the Australian She already accent. did it. <laughs> Australia. <laughs> she already did it. It's too late. Yeah, I know. I feel like every time I say Australia, I have to say Australia. And that's not even a good Australian accent. Like, I can't do accents, so. But yeah, I think this is a, a relatively famous case in Australia. So, any listeners who may be from Australia, you guys probably know of this case. But it's a pretty well-known case. Again, it's a very brutal case. Um, so, yeah, we're just, we're just going to jump right into it. So, um, I'm going to start this off talking about the last murder but the first murder that people people typically talk about when they talk about this case. Um, and this is the murder of 15-year-old Richard Kelvin. So at approximately 6.15 p.m. on June 5th, 1983, 15-year-old Richard Kelvin was abducted near the intersection of Margaret Street and Peppertree Lane in North Adelaide. Richard was actually the son of Rob Kelvin, who was a longtime television news presenter for Adelaide news station NWS9. So his father was kind of like a local celebrity. Um, so when Richard went missing, it was like big, big news because everybody knew him as the son of the newscaster, Rob Kelvin. So Richard had just seen off a friend at a nearby bus stop on the corner of O'Connell and Marion Streets in North Adelaide. After they had um, earlier in the afternoon, they had gone and they were playing football in a nearby park. And he was expected to return home, like, immediately for dinner. So he was to see his friend off, take his friend to the bus station, and then come home immediately. Um, This is, like, really sad. When he was abducted, he was only 60 meters, which if you convert that to feet, it's about 196 feet away from his home when he was abducted. Mm -hmm. So he he could see his house. He was right there when he was abducted. That's so sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, A witness who was a security guard living on Margaret Street had heard cries for help. They heard a car door slamming, uh, multiple car door slamming, actually, and a car with a noisy exhaust speeding away right around the time Richard is said to have been abducted. Notably, when he was abducted, Richard was wearing a dog collar around his neck. Um, The reason he was wearing this, it was a brown leather collar that had actually belonged to his family dog that had very recently passed away. So he was kind of wearing the collar as like a necklace as just like a little something to remember the family dog by that had just recently passed away. Um, And it is actually surmised that the collar around Richard's neck is actually what drew the attention of the person slash people potentially who abducted him. Um, Despite a wide-ranging search by police, extensive media coverage that included a full-page missing person poster in a popular Adelaide newspaper, there were no leads in finding Richard after his abduction. Seven weeks after his disappearance, a geologist named Trevor Holmes was out looking for moss rocks with his family alongside a dirt airstrip near One Tree Hill in the Adelaide Hills area when he made the grisly discovery of Richard Calvin's body. At first... 
um, Trevor had just spotted some kangaroo bones, which is like Australia. Like kangaroos are like deer, <laughs> like deer for us are like kangaroo. And Yo, have you ever seen that video where the guy goes up to the punches the kangaroo because yes, he's got his dog? dog. Yes. Yeah, that's some fucking shit. Dude. Like you got some balls. Honestly, the kangaroo. The kangaroo I was mean, like, what the? Fuck? Yeah, because he had his the kangaroo. The roo had his dog in like a fucking chokehold. Yeah. Yeah. So that man was like, not fucking today. Bop, dude. Yeah, the the kangaroo's face after it gets. And it's like, bro, what the fuck? He's like, what the fuck? You just punched me. <laughs> kangaroo's like, you just punch kangaroos? And the kangaroo goes back to his like kangaroo friend. He's like, yo, you won't even fucking guess what this dude just <laughs> yeah. did to me. <laughs> he fucking socked me in the face, man. Literally. But I mean, it got the kangaroo to drop his dog. Absolutely. So he did what he needed to Stunned do. Stunned him a little bit. Literally. He was like, bro, look. but that kangaroo was beefy. Yeah, he was. It was a beefy it fucking like kangaroo. Was in the gym. Bro, seriously, why is he so small? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys know what video we're talking about. I really hope you guys know. If do not, it. please go to YouTube and type so in guy punching kangaroo. <laughs> it's. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was definitely in Australia, too. <laughs> Man punched this kangaroo. <laughs> Honestly, if one of my like if one of my cats was being like strangled by an animal and I had to punch the shit out of yeah. it to save my cat, I'm punching that fucking animal. Yeah, because these are my these are mine. Literally, these are mine all the time. I think of like if these I ever are my got children. If I ever got like I think about if I ever got attacked by like a Canadian goose that I, I would just literally turn things. around and like kick it in its head. Yes, I hate. They're mean. They're so and mean. Shit. And they, they are, hiss. They are. Why so, do they hiss? <laughs> they are fucking Satan's birds, man. They Literally. are born from the mean devil himself. Fuck. You know there were some at the office the other day. There are and, so many, but they the were office. like in the sidewalk where you walk yes, in. Yes, so I literally avoided the them and walked through the grass. They <laughs> had to close down one of the entrance because a mother and father goose were nesting there and were being extremely aggressive to people walking towards their nest. So they had to close one of the entrances. Kill them. <laughs> I don't know. Are, are Canadian geese a protected species? I've no idea. I hope not because there's a million of them. You and want an endangered species? Because we've got about a gajillion. <laughs> Go to the canal. <laughs> if anybody everywhere. listening does not live in an area where there are these Canadian geese, Y'all are lucky because those motherfuckers are mean. Mean as fuck. Mean for no you reason. You can't go past them because they're mean. They will literally step up on you. If you look at that thing wrong, yes. you're getting attacked. If I hit one with my car, I'm going to keep driving. <laughs> I'm going to get jumped by some geese. no remorse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goose family. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Anyways, fuck Canadian geese. That's the moral And they're the annoying. They are. And, and they, they shit, shit everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's get back. Let's get back into this. We're gonna calm down. So, like it's, I said, I blame this. Honestly, yeah, this blue champagne we're drinking, and this probably wasn't a good idea because this is a very serious case, and we and do not also, need to be giggling like, our way through. This. I didn't really eat, so I'm like, Ooh. oh yeah, Autumn is like ten, gonna be ten times more drunk because you ate what, like two cinnamon rolls when you got here. I had two cinnamon rolls, and earlier I had some chicken wing dip, and then half a donut. <laughs> nice, we love that. <laughs> So, Trevor, at first, like I said, he spotted some kangaroo bones, and he kind of, like, went to investigate further, and as he moved closer, that is when he spotted a young boy laying in the bush. At first, he's not sure if the boy is just injured, so he calls out to him. Um, However, it does become pretty clear to him that the boy is no longer living. His body was laid in a fetal position under a bush, and he was still wearing blue jeans, Adidas sneakers, a t-shirt with a Channel 9 logo on it from the station that his father worked at, and that brown leather dog collar around his neck. 
and Trevor knew right away, A, from the dog collar and B, from the Channel 9 shirt, that he had discovered the body of Richard Kelvin. Forensic pathologist Dr. Ross James was called to the scene where Richard's body was found. At first glance, the condition of the corpse indicated that death had occurred several weeks before the body was discovered. Um, it was difficult, like, A, because they were working in the bush, and B, because the body had had such advanced decomposition already happening. Remember, he is not discovered until seven weeks after his initial abduction. Dr. James performed the autopsy of Richard's body the same day it was found. He couldn't be exact on the time of death due to the extent of the decomposition, but he theorized that Richard's body had been dumped two weeks prior to its discovery. So this means that he was held captive for five weeks after his abduction. Damn. And when we get into his injuries, like you can tell that this poor boy was absolutely fucking tortured for these five weeks what that is he this was again? What, what do you mean what when is it? it this is 19 hold on 1983 okay so again like i said couldn't be exact but they theorized that he had been killed two weeks prior to his discovery the body had been dumped two weeks prior to the discovery and richard's autopsy revealed a myriad of brutal injuries unable to be determined if they were inflicted pre or post-mortem due to the stage of decomposition there was a deep bruise low on the left side of his back inflicted two to three weeks before he died and another on his right buttock from an assault in the days before his death. And this is where I get into that, you know, preface of violent sexual assault, violent rape. Um, so trigger warning as we go into these for those of you listening, because it's it's really graphic, graphic and terrible. <clears throat> So he had an anal injury consistent with a blunt object being forced into him while it stretched until it was split. Um, there was a injury to the part of the anus wall to the depth of the like actual muscle, like your sphincter muscle, and other injuries to that in area inflicted pre-mortem, so before his death, resulting in massive blood loss and possible death within an hour. So he was raped so brutally and basically his like anal canal was torn so severely that it caused massive blood loss leading to death. Oh my God. That's so sad. I know. This one, like I really, so when I started this podcast, the reason I started it was because I had come across, uh, it was a Reddit post and it was called the serial killer iceberg. So, like, at the tip of the iceberg was, like, serial killers that people know a lot about, like, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, BTK, Mm -hmm. um, John Wayne Gacy, like, cases you hear covered a lot. And as you went deeper, quote-unquote, into the different tiers of the iceberg, there were, like, seven tiers, I think, A, the cases got more brutal, and B, less well-known. And this one was on, like, tier, like, six out of seven. Mm -hmm. So it was, like brutal brutal so that's the only thing i knew about when i put this case on the list i didn't know anything else about it so sad yeah it's it's terrible and like not to give a spoiler alert but most every victim i think on this list dies in that same way yeah now you see why i needed that disclaimer my heart heart. i know and they're all what did you 
I wish we had video because I would just like smack themselves in the eye somehow with their hoodie string. I put my hand down like this. My thumb must have been caught. And, and, it, just, and it just like whoosh. sprung up and smacked you in the face. We should have put um, the bottle of the champagne in the freezer so it got colder faster. Oh, hey. Put it in the fridge. Whatever. Whatever. Um, so Richard also had head injuries, including a subdural hematoma and other bruises to the underside of both frontal lobes. The type of injuries incurred when a moving skull hits a hard, immovable object. So he wasn't hit with something. His head was shoved into something. The oh. head is moving and it hits an immovable object, causing Probably the ricochet. Right. It's how you get a concussion when right. you fall and you knock your head on something. Right. Yeah. So he was his head was shoved into something. He had a fractured front tooth, which was sustained before or after death and food in his stomach, some of it still undigested. Mm-hmm. At least five drugs, each oh. with a sedative effect, were present in his system. They were Mandrax, Noctec, Amitol, Valium, and Rohypnol. Aww. His body was also cleaned and redressed before being dumped not more than two days after his murder. The Mandrax, though, was what gave police a solid lead. Police began sifting through prescriptions for that drug in particular, and during their search, they found a prescription for Mandrax issued to a person named B. Von Einem. I need to Google what Mandrax is. It's like a, it's a, it's a, um... Mandrax. It's a sedative. But it's what like is a, it used for? As a sedative. <laughs> right, but why do they prescribe it to you? As like, a sedative. Right, but why do you need a sedative? I don't know. <laughs> why does a person need a sedative? I don't know. Maybe that's what I'm sleeping. <laughs> but yeah, Mandrax was also, it was very. It's a like, depressant. Yes, it's, a depressant slows your it's system for down. It's people with stress and anxiety. Yeah, it's a sedative. It's like, I'm very stressed out, so I need a sedative to Which, chill my, then chill why my bones. Why did you say that when I said, what is it used for? I didn't know what it was used for. I'm just like, I know it's a sedative. I didn't look that much <laughs> into it. I didn't know the specifics of what they prescribed it for, but I just know it's a sedative. Oh. Um, so, like, in Australia at this time, Mandrax was very regulated. So they knew that if this person had Mandrax, they would have had to have gotten it from a prescription, and they were right. Apparently, it's extremely addictive. Well, it would make sense. <laughs> As we get a little bit further in there, and we, we kind of go into this, uh, who this B. Von Einem person was, mm-hmm. we'll kind of get into, like, his background, what he was doing with these drugs, what his whole kind of deal was, and it'll make a little bit more sense. So this name was actually familiar to police, as Von Einem had been questioned previously over the deaths of three young men and the alleged sexual assault of another. So who the fuck is this person? So B stands for Bevin. His name is Bevin Spencer Von Einem. That's how you know he ain't shit. His name is Bevin instead of Kevin. <laughs> Bevin. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, Bevin Spencer Von Einem. So I'm going to refer to him as Bevin because that name is a fucking mouthful. Bev. Bev. <laughs> This is Bev. Fucking Bev. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) So, Bevin Spencer von Einem was the youngest of five children, born on May 29th, 1946, to his parents Bernard and Thor Grace von Einem. His father was an engineer for a printing firm, and his mother was a pianist. Um, Bevin's father was very stern and very harsh. He was often sarcastic and harsh towards Bevin's mother, um, to which... Uh, Bevan often came to his mother's defense. He would always, like, tell his father, like, not be mean to his mother and, like, stand up and defend her. And this made Bevan, like, very clearly his mother's favorite child. 
Um, the Von Items, they lived next to a brewery. And Ooh. when he was young, Bevan would often be given rides around town by one of the delivery drivers. Um, this was very exciting for him because his parents did not own a car. So for him to get to ride around in this car, it was a really great, really fun time for him. Um, Bevan is said to have described his childhood home as falling apart and riddled with an infestation of ants. So bad that the ants had practically chewed through some of the floorboards in the house in multiple places. Damn. So, yeah, he pretty much described them as, like, living in squalor. So they were, like, a poverty family. Yeah. They didn't have a car. They lived in a very, like, run-down house. Um, When Bevan was 13, his father was diagnosed with an aggressive form of bowel cancer and had to have a colostomy bag. Um, Fun fact, his father was, like, one of the first people in Australia to actually have this procedure Mm. performed. Um, and one of Bevan's childhood friends recalled how Bevan was seemingly fascinated with this colostomy oh, bag. Not another shit one. <laughs> That's literally because I, I read. I was reading. I'm, I am currently reading a book, but about this case, which is where I got a lot of this information. And that was literally my first thought when I was reading this like childhood friend's account of how he was like fascinated by the fact that like his father basically shit into a bag. Not another shit. I know. That's, and I was like, this is not like Albert Fish 2.0, please. I'm fucking begging you. (laughs) Please, no. (laughs) At least there's no shit eating in this case that I know of. Because that, I can't do that again. I can't do that again. No TY, no TY. No thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So, this same childhood Fred um, referred to in Debbie Marshall's book, Banquet The Untold Story of Adelaide's Family Murders. Um, He's referred to as Paul in this book. He also suggested that the, like, drives Bevan used to take with the delivery driver from the brewery were not just innocent trips around town. Um, Paul implied that the delivery driver was actually a pedophile and had been molesting Bevan from the time he was five up until he was seven years old. As Bevan grew into his late teens and early 20s, he became to understand that he was attracted to other men. He often frequented so-called gay haunts around Adelaide in which other men would cruise for casual hookups and gay and transgender sex workers would often look for customers in these places as well. Um, Venturing to these haunts did have some danger as well um, due to the very violent and very rampant homophobia in Adelaide at the time. Police officers would actually be the ones to conduct a lot of this anti-gay violence They would often raid these areas looking specifically for gay men, and they would often beat these men or arrest them or what they would do at this one specific location. It was kind of like um, a walk, like a pathway by a park right next to a river. So they would either beat the ever-loving shit out of them, arrest them, or throw them into the Torrens River. Great. Um, There was an instance in 1971 when Bevan was out cruising around his typical haunt in North Adelaide. Um, He had this, like, certain shtick. He would do the same thing every time, pretty much, where he would pretend that he was having trouble with his, like, car muffler. And he would look for a man who was willing to stop and help him. And what men would do, typically, because they, you never really ever fully knew if you were approaching a new man if he was gay or not. So you had to have, like, a little shtick. You kind of had to do a little, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. People didn't have a gaydar back then. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they probably had a sense of who was there for 
a hookup and who mm-hmm. was not. But yeah, there was no grinder back in the eighties. He just had to <laughs> just not impress your luck. He just had to impress your luck. So he would basically kind of like, you know, cruise around in his car and he'd like spot a man who I guess he thought, you know, could possibly be a fellow gay man. And he would basically pull over and be like, Oh hey, you know, do you want me to or can you help me like fix my car or whatever it was and if this man was like oh yeah i'll help you fix your car quote unquote and then he would get in the car they would you know go somewhere else because everybody has to be fishy especially then <laughs> <laughs> exactly everybody's so, like sure yeah wink wink nudge nudge <laughs> you can fix my car you can fix my car <laughs> okay Sorry, if there's an awkward stop in this audio, it's because I realized that I was recording over an old track, so if the audio is shitty up to this point, I'm sorry. Anyways. <laughs> He's literally, like, checking out my lap. Like, can I do Dude, yeah, <laughs> Carter is sitting on one of the, because we recorded my dining what? table. So we are sitting across from each other, and Carter is on one of the chairs. And he's literally <laughs> staring Autumn down. Like, he wants to sit in, he wants to sit in her lap so bad. But you will knock over the microphone, Wigwam, because you're big, fat boy. And he can't sit on your lap. But he's A, the biggest cat of all three of my cats. And he is B, the neediest cat out of all three cats. If he is not sitting in somebody's (laughs) lap, he is not happy. (laughs) 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 The picture on him just took us hilarious. I need to, I'm going to send those to me because I'm going to post it on the Instagram so people can get a visual of what we're talking about when <laughs> we're talking about him. And he, like, heavy breathes at you when he wants something, so he's just sitting there heavy breathing right now, but... All right, we will, we will continue on with this case. Just, so, we left off talking about how Bevan would, you know, drive around these places, and he would have his little stick of, oh, I need car help, please get in my car and help me with my muffler, quote-unquote, how he wants to help with his muffler, if you know what I mean. Wink, 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 wink nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> so this night, as he was driving, he spotted a teenage boy who was waiting for his sister to come and meet him. He pulls over and he asks this boy for help with his car. And being none the wiser, this boy comes over and offers to help him. So when they were finished fixing the exhaust on the car um the boy accepted bevan's offer to come and sit in the front seat of his car while he waited for his sister to get there bevan also offered to let the boy drive the car around a little bit um but the boy declined because he was not old enough and he didn't have a license so he's like i don't want to get in trouble like i don't want to drive the car it's fine i'll just sit here and i'll wait for my sister um they went back and forth a little bit with some small talk for a little while um before bevan was basically thinking like all right, it's now or never. This kid's sister is about to come back. So he just outright asked this boy, a teenage boy, if he wanted to go somewhere quiet with him so they could go suck each other off. Like, to the flat. He's like, you want to suck my dick? (laughs) Like, no tact. Nothing. He's like, so do you want to go somewhere and suck each other's dicks or what? And the boy's like, what? What the fuck? Your face right now is so funny. We need to get video for this because your reactions need to be seen. <laughs> but he had no shame. He's like, we sucking dicks or what? We sucking dicks or, or not? <laughs> so you're going to suck it or not? So you're going to suck my dick or what? It's not going to suck us up. <laughs> Just whips it out. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh my God, trauma. 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 Have you ever? Omegle. Oh, <laughs> 
No, we, oh. ta- we talked about this before. We talked about the trauma chat roulette and Omegle, but that was the first time I ever saw a dick was on chat roulette. Same. I was no. at, I was at, uh, uh, it was. What? It was at Elf House where I saw this. It was like eighth grade. <laughs> No, oh, it, was it was on chat roulette. We went on chat roulette and literally first we literally clicked connect first thing dick. Literally. It was a big old dick. I should have brought the other bottle of wine in here. Um, why don't you go put this one in the fridge? I'll, Is that I'll, sweet? Yeah, it's okay. chocolate flavored actually. I'll vamp for a minute while Autumn puts the... Uh, why am I stuck on the yeah, chair? Yeah, so any, any of my y'all listening... literally, <laughs> I could not escape. My sock was stuck on Any of y'all listening who are not old enough to have been in the era of going on Omegle and chat roulette... It was like it was hit or miss every single time. You either, you either like actually found somebody that you could chat with for a little while, or it was a dick. It was always one or the other. It was, always a dick. It was and most of the time it was a dick. <laughs> or it's somebody that like starts here and you're like, and hey, then, and, and then like, they pan down. It's a dick. Yeah, no. The they second don't even, and it was so fucked too because they would they would pan through people and it would be like yeah from like the chest up and the second they saw it was like. A girl. An underage girl dick. Straight fucking predator like, ass yeah. men on fucking chat roulette and Omegle. It was disgusting. Me when I was stuck in the house because I had COVID, we all went on Did Omegle on, our, on my phone. We went on my phone. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my god. Because you know where I was stuck. Yeah. Yup. So yeah, Bevan basically asks this guy, he's like, we suck in dick or not. Or I say guy, boy. Oh, this Bev. Is a teenage Good old boy. Bev. Good old Bev. He says, we suck in dick or not. And the boy was fucking horrified by this suggestion he straight up jumps out of bevan's car um starts sprinting away bevan gets out of his car running after him screaming at this boy that he was gonna kill him um but luckily the boy was too quick for bevan to catch and managed to get away from him the boy went to the police station immediately after this happened to report to them what had happened. But by the time the police retraced, retraced the boy's steps to the location where he met bevan bevan was already long gone because in this time, homosexuality was, no, this was after it was a criminal offense. But, like we talked about, police would, are we? They're like, ick, I'm going to catch the gay. Yeah, literally. They, they would like still. Like Jeffrey Denver, that was in the 90s. Yeah, they would literally still find a reason to throw you in jail or They're beat like, the fuck out of you. They're like, I don't want to come into your apartment to check to make sure this teenage boy isn't going to get murdered. Yeah, literally, because you guys are gay. Because yeah. I don't want to catch Even though this whatever boy is clearly fucking out of it. Clearly bleeding crying from his Bleeding from his, yeah, seriously, that's so fucked up. Um, all right, we are going to go back now to May 10th, 1972. Um, this case is not in relation to the family murders that we're talking about, but it is relevant because this is the first time that um, Bevan, he kind of gets onto police's radar in a way. Um, so this is May 10th, 1972. 41-year-old Dr. George Duncan, who had arrived in Adelaide only seven weeks earlier, left a dinner engagement around 10.30 p.m., after which he decided to go down and take a walk looking out over the river. 27-year-old Roger James was also at the river this same night, and the two men ended up just sitting next to each other on the same bench looking over the river. As they were sitting there, suddenly a large man appeared behind them and began accosting Roger James, while three other men then came out of nowhere basically and grabbed Dr. Duncan. So they were, like, accosting these two men, and they were pretty much attacking them because they were assuming because they were sitting next to each other on this bench and the river was an area for gay men to go cruising, they made the assumption that these two men were two gay men trying to arrange some sort of 
casual sex. So they're like shoving them. They're getting up in their face like, oh, do you give it or do you take it? Like, are you fucking gay? Like basically just being really disgusting human beings, these two men. So Roger James ends up getting pushed back. So they're trying to push him into the river and his foot catches on like, they have like a bunch of like big boulder river rocks or like along the, um, like bank of the river, Mm. his foot catches on one of these rocks and he trips, he falls backwards. And as he's falling, he breaks his ankle. Uh, And Dr. Duncan also, meanwhile, is tossed into the river. Roger James is in the water. He can swim. He's got a broken ankle, but he can swim. But Dr. Duncan cannot swim. And the second they toss him into the river, he immediately begins to sink. Um, Roger James tries to call to the men that threw Dr. Duncan into the river, telling them that the other man is drowning, but all they do is just mockingly respond to Roger James to go save his friend himself. Um, But poor Roger James, because he's got this broken ankle, he's like, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to swim down, get this other man, and bring him to the surface with my ankle just fucking broken like it is. So... He can't save, he can't save George Duncan. So all Roger James is able to do is like very painstakingly swim to the bank of the river and pull himself out. And he kind of like crawled over to a tree and just slumps down under it. And unfortunately, because he could not pull Dr. Duncan from the river, Dr. Duncan cannot swim, Dr. Duncan drowns and dies because of this. You know, I mean... It's, I feel like it's so weird to find somebody that can't swim. It happens. I mean, there's just I some know. people who, like, like never got the chance to learn. Right, but I feel like natural instinct should, like, kick in. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know. I don't know, like, what they... I don't know if Dr. Duncan was conscious, even, mm-hmm. when they threw him into the river. Because, mind you, before they toss Roger James and Dr. Duncan into the river, they are, like, physically, like, assaulting them. And Roger James has one man pushing him. Dr. Duncan has three on him. He's probably fighting like hell because he knows that this isn't going to happen to him. So it's not even known if he was even conscious when Mm -hmm. he got thrown into the river. But some way, somehow, the second he hit the water, he's sinking. And Roger James, they're strangers. They don't even fucking know each other beyond probably some, like, you know, cordial greetings when they sat down next to each other on this bench And he's like, this man is fucking drowning, but my ankle is shattered. I can barely keep my head above water right now. There's no way I'm going to be able to save this man. Right. So he could only do what he could to save himself and pull himself out of the river. So as he's, like, crawled out of the river, he's slumped down under a tree. He's spotted by a passing car. And this passing car just so happened to be driven by Mr. Bevan Von Einem. Bevan pulls over because he actually recognizes Roger James as a part of this local gay network. And he pulls over and he offers to pick Roger up and take him to Royal Adelaide Hospital. So basically, Bevan put James in, like Roger James in the car, pulled up to the hospital and just like booted him out of the car. And was like, go get help. <laughs> Which I mean, thankfully he gave him a ride there. But he was just like, this man has a broken ankle. I'm like. She's like, mm, fuck you. Bye. Told him to limp there. You're already damaged. Yeah. Bye. And Roger James did tell Bevan that there had been another man who had drowned, 
Um, so the next day after this, Bevan did go to the police and reported to them how Roger James had told him that he and another man had been thrown into the river and that this other man had drowned. Um, it was immediately suspected that police from the local department were to blame for Dr. Duncan's drowning. However, neither Roger James nor a third unnamed victim from that same night were able, or honestly, it's probably not that they were able, they were not willing because they were, uh, they were scared of retaliation. If they were to say it was these people and they were in, like, if they name police officers, they're scared that they're going to be retaliated against. Right. So they refused to identify any of the men who had attacked them that night. Um, because he was the one to rescue Roger James, Bevin was also pulled into this investigation as a witness. Um, Bevin tried to say that he was just in the area because he was dropping off mail at a mailbox near the river. Um, but the public knew the truth to be that Bevin was there that night to meet up with a male lover. After this, Bevin began to receive a lot of threatening and abusive phone calls at the home where he was living with his mother at the time. Uh, Premier Detective Don Dunstan was in charge of leading the investigation into Dr. Duncan's murder. And Dr. Duncan, after this, he became a poster boy for the movement to decriminalize homosexuality. Hmm. Because at this point, it was still, a, being gay was a prosecutable Crime. offense. Yes, it was illegal isn't that crazy? to like, be gay. Isn't that crazy to think, like, at one point in time, it was literally, you could go to jail. In some places, it still is. For loving somebody yeah and a lot of like in some places it still is illegal to be and like gay. even like like interracial stuff mm-hmm. like that is so wild to me that at one point in time that it's just yeah it was illegal to love somebody of a different race it was illegal to love somebody like, of the same gender like what the fuck yeah we think like as a society that we've advanced so much but then you think of all like the like well, the rampant homophobia, the rampant racism that still exists in our society. It's like we really have not come very far at it's all. It's just legal now. Exactly. You're just not going to go to jail for it, but there's still yeah. people who literally tell you you're going to fucking burn in hell just because of the way you love somebody. AKA fucking religions. Bitches. God damn it. <laughs> Religion is the scourge of the earth. <laughs> Anyways. Anywho. So, although no arrests were ever made in relation to Dr. Duncan's murder, as the only suspects were three detectives from the local police department, this case led to South Australia being the first state or territory in Australia to decriminalize homosexuality, marking freedoms never before experienced by gay men and providing an age of consent, which was 17, for sexual intercourse. So it's very sad that it took the death of an innocent man, but the outrage from Dr. Duncan's death was what really led and really pushed for the politicians and the lawmakers of, um, what was it, South Australia to decriminalize homosexuality. Cheers. Cheers to, to that. Homosexuality legal. Legalized. We love that. Um, so this decriminalization led to a flourishing of the gay community in South Adelaide with like clubs and gay friendly spaces opening up all across the city and gay men were finally unafraid to be proud about their sexualities, which was something they were never, ever able to do before. Of course, there was always the threat of violence, which unfortunately, unfortunately, there's still the threat of like violence today, but they were able to be free in a way that they could not before. Because at least they knew they were not going to be arrested just for being like, I'm gay. So there was that. And there was a lot of, like I said, like flourishing of like gay clubs and like just 
like gay center community spaces where these people could come together and they didn't have to worry that they were going to be raided by the police just for being in a gathering of gay people. So Bevan was sure to take advantage of these new freedoms as well. Of course he did. He typically hung out with two groups of friends. So he had the quote-unquote socially acceptable ones, which were like lawyers, businessmen, private school educated folk, versus the so-called bottom feeders that were on the fringes of society. So these were trans women, drag queens, drug addicts, and alcoholics, um, all of whom typically worked as sex workers, were in manual labor, or were unemployed. Um, Bevan also often carried a myriad of drugs in his car. Sometimes these drugs were laced with horse tranquilizers or were just a myriad of random pills. In here comes where he is one of the people to be supplying those sedative drugs. I already forgot that we're talking about multiple people. I'm like, oh, we're only talking about Ben. Ben No, it's the the family. Ben is the family murderer. (laughs) So, like I said, one of these drugs. he's got multiple personalities. (laughs) That's a family of murderers. He is his own family. Like, he is the only one to ever be arrested and prosecuted and convicted for these murders. Mm. But it is very clear just based on the circumstances that there are multiple people involved. He was Mm. just the only one to ever get caught. The reason he got caught was because he was one of the suppliers of these drugs, like that Mandrax. Mm -hmm. The prescription was in his name. And he was said to basically go to parties where he would hang out with these, like, you know, his less, like, quote-unquote, less socially acceptable friends, like the trans women, drag queens, other gay men, um, drug addicts, alcoholics. They would basically have parties, and he would basically just, like, be popping out Mandrax like it was fucking Pez candy. You're like, you get a pill, and you get a pill, and you get a pill, and you get a pill. It's like this one party I was at, this guy was popping out mollies. Oh. Like, they were just fucking smarties. Right. (laughs) That's basically what he was doing. And it was, like, sad, basically, anywhere that, like, Bevan showed up, within a couple hours, it was going to turn into, like, a giant orgy, because he was just giving everybody mandrax. Speaking of orgies. Speaking of orgies! (laughs) (laughs) Makes me think of when we went to the Museum of Sex. Oh, my God. that fucking menu. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, dude, that was, I thought you were going to talk about the dick-yanking game. That was fun. That was fun. I'm a winner, baby. <laughs> Bitch, I was... If I would have pulled one more dick. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. I'm, Mr. Spermy is sitting on the little... In the kitchen. He's on the little plant holder next to the oven. <laughs> so he just greets you when oh, you walk in the door. Oh, this is our first podcast since the city. Just mm-hmm. so you know, here's a little city update. Emily and I had tons of fun. Yes, it was great. We Very got drunk. Time. We did get drunk. We First spent, night there, we got drunk. Drunk. Because we, we had bottomless. Brunch. Because we were like, oh, bottomless mimosas? No, bitch. It's bottomless drinks. Tequila. For two hours. Someone's tequila. And the, the first drink they brought us was, they just dumped a bottle of tequila in There was in so a, much tequila and just in my veins. put a splash of purple in there. And yeah, then, no, so, there was so much tequila. Like, I'm not even sure that purple shit had a flavor. No, it was like, tequila it was like, ice and purple food coloring. Literally, like, they just put a splash of purple. It was a tequila and water with some purple ice, purple uh, food coloring. Uh, bitch. It was, it was crazy. strong as fuck, dude. We were and, drunkity drunk. We were drunk by, like, 4 p.m. Oh, God, yeah. Um... And, not to mention the fucking tequila shots that they kept bringing over. Oh my god. And they were like, everybody shot. was like, here, take mine, take mine, because I don't want to take it, and I'm a bitch. And I'm like, okay. And just <laughs> taking it off. In fact, I don't like tequila shots. I would drink tequila in a mixed drink, but I do not like tequila shots. Um, I only did half of mine the first time they brought it over. I can't fucking shoot tequila. It's bleh, disgusting. I know, but I took everybody else's. Even the table next to us, he brought them free tequila shots. 
And they gave me theirs. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember. I'm like, what the fuck? That's like when we were at the Beetle House, and you're like, I don't feel good. I'm like, understood. I looked at you, I said, I need something other than alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went McDonald's, and it was great. We need something. <laughs> yeah, so um, Bevan was the fucking hookup, and every time he went to a party, he was passing out these mandraxes, and then people started fucking. Um, so God, Mandrax speaks. Yeah, he was, he was literally the hookup. He, like, if Bevan showed up at the party, like, you knew that he had drugs on him every single time. So we're going to hop now back and we're going to, we're going to get back into, um, the abduction and the murder of Richard Kelvin. We're going to talk, um, now a little bit about the investigation and what happens following the discovery of his body. So, four days after Richard Kelvin's body was discovered, um, Bevan von Einem was questioned by the police about the murder. He initially claimed that he had not seen Kelvin and had no knowledge of his whereabouts and stated that on the night of the abduction, he had been in bed with the flu and was off work for the next week. Police also searched his home in northern Adelaide. Um, He lived in a suburb called Paradise. And when they were searching his home, they found and seized a bottle of Mandrax. Bevan admitted that the drugs were his and said that he used them to help him sleep. He denied having any other drugs in his possession, but police also seized a bottle of Noctec concealed on a ledge behind his wardrobe. Bevan also allowed police to take hair and blood samples from him, as well as samples from carpets and other materials from his house for testing. There were three major factors in Bevan's initial questioning that really led police to become more confident they they had found their prime suspect in Richard Kelvin's murder. So the first was that when police knocked on Bevan's door and inquired about whether they could ask him a few questions, his immediate reaction was to say that he would not answer anything without speaking to his lawyer first. Second thing that was a little saucy When questioned about the Kelvin murder, rather than profusely denying any involvement, Bevan simply said that he would not do such a thing because it would be unethical. Like, what kind of fucking answer is that? I would never murder anybody. I wouldn't do that. That's unethical. Bitch. The fuck? (laughs) Bitch. (laughs) The fucking square up fist. Um, And then the third thing that was suspicious, uh, when asked about drugs, Bevan did admit that he had Mandrax. He was asked if he kept any other drugs in his possession, and he said no. However, the police then found the bottle of Noctec, and Bevan immediately became nervous and told the police that he, quote, rarely used those drugs. So that is right there, two of the five drugs. but I have them. Right, yes. And that right there is two of the five drugs that were found in Richard Kelvin's system he has in his possession. Um, Bevan actually went on vacation in the Soviet Union, to the Soviet Union in 1983. Why would you ever vacation there? Don't know. Um, and while he was gone, the police are continuing to just build and build and build and build their case against him. So as he's gone, the case against him is growing stronger and stronger. Forensic investigators were able to match the many fibers found on Kelvin's clothing to those taken from Bevan's home, along with hairs, along with hairs that were found to have matched those belonging to Bevan Von Einem. So there are hairs on Richard's body, and they were able to match them to the hairs that they took from the samples that Bevan allowed them to take. So they're like, this is our fucking dude. Forensics also determined that Richard was murdered between July 8th and July 11th of 1983, and was dumped at the airstrip no later than the 11th. Again, like two days preceding his murder. 
Police also searched for a man who had previously claimed to police during the investigation of the unsolved murder of Alan Barnes in 1979 that Bevan had been involved in Alan's death and also that he was a former associate of Bevan. So this man is like, I know Bevan. We together were involved in the death of this man named Alan Barnes in 1979. So he's like, you got to look into this man. Like, you really got to look into him. Also, bringing up the death of Alan Barnes was, was a very good clue for them and a very good connection to them because Alan Barnes's injuries were very, very similar to those that Richard Kelvin had. Um, this man, who was known as Mr. B, was located and informed police in great detail how he and Bevan Von Einem had picked up young male hitchhikers, had given them alcoholic drinks laced with hypnotic drugs, and had taken them to Bevan's previous home in the Adelaide suburb of Campbelltown, where the young men had been abused overnight and released the next day. Police also questioned other people whom Bevan had associated with, but they volunteered little information. They clambered the fuck up. We're not telling you anything. Because honestly... I feel like anybody who was closely associated with Bevan at this time was a part of this ring, basically, that Bevan was supplying boys and supplying drugs for. With enough evidence, along with the information given by Mr. B to indicate that Calvin was at Bevan's home around the time of his death, police arrested and charged Bevan Von Einem with murder on November 3rd, 1983. Bevan still denied ever coming in contact with Richard Kelvin, um, and he was also considered the prime suspect in four other murders committed between 1979 and 1982. These unsolved murders had been dubbed the family murders. So, uh, who the fuck is the family? What do we want to know about them? So, basically, the family, quote-unquote, so they got this name from a uh, 60 Minutes documentary that was done where there was a quote in the documentary about like breaking up the family quote unquote because it was a special about these murders um so from that point on they were referred to as the family wait pause pause okay we're pausing because autumn's gotta pee lol all right autumn has successfully had a pee break and we are back (laughs) so let's get into talking about the family and who they were So the family were a loosely connected group of individuals believed to be involved in the kidnapping and sexual abuse of over 150 teenage boys and young men, as well as the torture and murder of five young men aged between 14 and 25 in Adelaide, South Australia in the 1970s and the 1980s. So like I mentioned, um, the name of the group stems from an interview a police detective gave on 60 Minutes, claiming that the police were taking action to, quote, break up the happy family. Police believe that up to 12 people, several of them being very high-profile Australians like lawyers, politicians, businessmen, were involved in this family and had a playing in the kidnappings and the rape of these young men and potentially the five murders that we will... I'm not talking about all five of them in this episode. I'm going to talk about Richard Calvin. We talked about and there's two other ones that are... Or there's Richard Calvin and then like four others that are attributed to the family. So I'm going to talk about Richard Kelvin and then two other ones in this part one. But total, it was the rape and torture and murder of these five victims that they believed were attached to the family. Um, The suspects and their associates were linked mainly by their shared habits of, quote, actively having sought out young males for sex, sometimes drugging and raping their victims. So the first suspected victim murdered by the family was 16-year-old Alan Arthur Barnes. 
So we talked about him a little bit, remember, in relation to Richard Kelvin, because they had Mr. B, who contacted police and was like, hey, you might want to look into Bevan von Einem, because we were also involved in the murder of Alan Barnes as well in 1979. And again, their injuries were very, very similar, which we'll get into. So Alan went missing in June of 1979 after he spent the weekend hanging out with his friend, uh, Darko Castellan. Darko was the last person to have seen Alan alive. Alan had opted to hitchhike back home from Darko's place, having been picked up by a man or potentially multiple men who were driving a white sedan. When it was late on Sunday and Alan still hadn't come home, his mother Judy began to grow worried. She called Darko, who told her that Alan was not with him, and he was surprised that Alan had not returned home yet. Judy tried to get help from police, but the police brushed her off, saying that Alan was probably just out with friends and would turn up eventually. When Alan did not return home on his birthday, which was just a few days after he had gone missing, his mother, like his family, knew then that something was terribly, terribly wrong. They knew that there was no way that Alan would miss his birthday. So Alan, he was described to have been like very like he had like shoulder length blonde hair. He was tall. Like he was described like he was very handsome. He was kind of like a ladies man. He was like a when you think of an Australian man. Like Yes, that was that was very much Alan. Like he was he was he was that typical you know, blonde hair, light eyed, like a surfer guy kind of. Yeah, like you said, mm-hmm. you think of somebody from Australia. Like, that was Alan. He was very charismatic, did very well with the ladies. Um, he was actually, like, super excited because he had, like, just gotten a girlfriend. And so he was like, yeah, I got this girlfriend. I'm going to go hang out with her. I'm turning 17 in a couple days. So for police to be like, oh, he's probably just all fucking around with his friends. And then for him to not come home for his birthday when he was, like, so excited about his birthday, they're like, something something's wrong like his mother knew in like just her gut that something had happened to her son um so he was known admittedly so the first couple days they were like okay like maybe he's just with friends because he was known sometimes to stay out late party with his friends he'd hang out for them with them for a couple days but he always came home so it was very very unlike him to not come home at all for days on end like, Max, he'd be gone for, like, a day. But he'd always stop back home and, like, say hi to his mom and tell her where he was going if he was going to be gone for a long period of time. Um, it was a week later, again on a Sunday, when Alan's mother got a knock on her door and police told her that Alan's body had been found dumped in the South Pear Reservoir northeast of Adelaide. So his mom's gut feeling that something was wrong was unfortunately very correct hmm. also if you if you can hear that that's carter with yeah the they can definitely mouse. hear carter in the background he's got a catnip toy and he's going absolutely bonkers over it literally he's got a mouse and it's he's he's literally been across the entire apartment in like <laughs> he, two minutes he loves catnip toys this is the most exercise that's not a mouse it's a sloth actually like it if you pick it up it's a little loopy loop, but if you pick it up, it's a sloth. <laughs> Carter is bugging. Like, he loves, he love, love, loves little catnip toys. He loves those things. He'll play with him, like play with those by himself for like hours. Oh, he's carrying it around. It's adorable. Oh, yeah, he needs ex- he needs the exercise. Don't distract him. <laughs> um, so the autopsy on Alan's body was performed by Dr. Colin Manick. 
and the autopsy was performed on June 24th, 1979, the same day that Alan's body was discovered. Dr. Manick concluded that Alan had died 48 hours prior to the discovery of his body. He was murdered on June 22nd, the day of Alan's birthday. That's my birthday. You guys are birthday twins. I hate that. You guys are birthday twins. Scratch that. My birthday's the 21st. (laughs) (laughs) But this is really sad because he would have been murdered on his birthday. Yeah. Mm. So that's my birthday. The cause of death for Alan was determined to have been massive blood loss. Damn. Injury wise, Alan had a five centimeter circular abrasion and severe bruising to his eye, multiple broken bones, as well as significant anal trauma. He had two deep lacerations through the sphincter muscle, one angled toward the left at like seven o'clock, like if you're looking at like Mm -hmm. circle seven o'clock, and the other at nine o'clock. So they were like, Um, He had lacerations approximately three centimeters long on the skin surface and extended into the rectum for a distance of approximately five centimeters. Wait. So it was... You said said seven and nine? Yeah, so, like, if you're looking at a clock, right? If, like, it's a circle... It's not going to be this. Well, yeah, because this is seven and this is nine. Right, but you were this and this. Oh, yeah, because I was forgetting where seven was. But <laughs> like, it was bitch, like this. Seven yeah, is so here. it's where like seven o'clock would and be nine and nine like o'clock would be. So it's, it's like a, a, like an angle. Because what probably happened is it was forced hmm. open and that angle, that skin split and lacerated. Eek. Eek. Um, so he, along with that, tear right on the surface there was also lacerations extending into the rectum for a distance of approximately five centimeters um he had ruptured tissues which would have ruptured ruptured pre-mortem most likely from again the insertion of an object similar to a bottle with a tapered neck causing shock and profuse bleeding Oh, no. So, again, he died due to massive blood loss from the injuries he sustained as a result of this very violent, very brutal sexual assault. His spinal cord had been broken post-mortem from when he was tossed, because his body was tossed off a bridge into the South Para Reservoir. Uh. The absence of blood in his clothes, despite the fact that his injuries would have caused me. <laughs> the burp. The burp while I'm describing these horrific injuries to this poor boy, please. I can't Get help it together. It. Get it together. It's uncontrollable. Thank you. <laughs> it's an involuntary response. But the fact that he did not have any blood on him when his injuries would have caused massive amounts of bleeding indicated that Alan, like Richard, had been undressed when the injuries occurred, then cleaned and redressed post-mortem. There were also traces of Noctec, a known sedative and hypnotic drug, were found in Alan's blood. He also had a blood alcohol content of 0.19. Jesus Christ. Suggesting that the alcohol had been ingested somewhere between two to three hours before his death. After news broke that Alan's body had been discovered, the information from the public coming in was slim. Slim. Wow. Slim. The information coming in was slim. It was slim. It's because the next one of my note was sketchy, so I just... Everything's slim. Slim. I'm going to say that from now on. That's slim. It's because the next word was sketchy, and I just combined them. Slim. <laughs> Kim Kardashian's new brand is Slim. Slim. But no, was you slim. know, fun fact. I took a psycholinguistics class 
my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. And that happens because your brain is working too fast for your mouth and you read the words and yes, you combine them. That's literally what happened because I was reading it and it came out slim. <laughs> that's that's why just in case anybody doesn't know why that happens to them, that's why. Because your brain is ahead of your mouth. Wow. The more you know. Yes, because I took a psychology. From our resident psychology major. Yes. (laughs) It's because I was low-key thinking of getting into linguistics, and then I took that, like, the psycholinguistics class with my cog psych professor, who I fucking hated. Yeah, we talked about this on another episode. (laughs) She, uh, anyway. Anyway, psycholinguistics, make sure you have a good professor. (laughs) Moral of the story, I have a good professor. Okay, let me re-say that line. We're going to try it again. Mm-hmm. After news broke that Alan's body had been discovered, the information from the public coming in was slim, slim. with sketchy, unconfirmed <laughs> sightings. One person called in to say that he met Alan for the first time the day before he went missing, introduced to him by Darko Castellan, and he saw Alan run along the footpath towards a white Holden HQ sedan that had stopped by the side of the road sometime between 2 and 4 p.m., Remember, Alan was picked up by a white sedan. The rear passenger side door of the vehicle opened, but by this time, he had driven past the vehicle, and he can't say for sure whether Barnes got in, but could see that the car had three or four people already in it. Perhaps the most unsettling sighting, and this is really sad, um, prior to Al- the most unsettling sighting prior of Alan prior to his death came from somebody very close to home. It was actually Alan's older brother, Mike. Mike, who was learning to drive a semi-truck, was in the truck with his driving instructor driving down the eastern freeway on the other side of Sterling headed towards Melbourne when he spotted a white Datsun sedan or something similar parked on the side of the road with three men inside. Another man was standing outside the car. This man was about six feet tall and was wearing glasses. Inside the car, there was another person sitting in the middle of the back seat seemingly passed out or otherwise incoherent, with his mouth hanging open. A heavyset man was sitting on his right. Through the glare of the semi's headlights, Mike was able to see who was sitting in the driver's seat, or he wasn't able to see who was sitting in the driver's seat, I'm sorry, but he immediately recognized the person slumped in the back seat as his brother, Alan. Mike shouted for the driving instructor to stop. The instructor did not. Two days later, Mike saw on the news that a body had been found and pulled out of the South Para Reservoir. His sister Robin later came to his house to tell him that the body was Alan. Mike told Robin what he had seen. That's so sad. And then told his other older brother, John. A week later, he told their mother, Judy, but she refused to believe that Mike had seen Alan, although Mike knew for sure that he had. So one of the last people likely to see Alan alive, save for her, save for his killers, was his older brother. That is so sad. And it makes you wonder, like, had this driving instructor just pulled the fuck over, Alan would probably still be alive. Which is just, I could not imagine what? being in that situation, like, knowing you saw your brother, mm-hmm. and then two days later... You find out that they found his body thrown into a fucking reservoir. That is so sad. It literally, like, when I read that in this book, I was like, I had to, like, stop reading for a second. I was like, that's fucking horrible. Like, imagine if it was us. Yeah, Like, no. you drive by with and somebody. And I see, like, you or one of right. my fucking siblings, and, and I'm then, like, I know that's them. Right. And because you're just like, oh, they're out doing whatever. Yeah, and the and next, like, the next 
two days later, you're like, like no, Mike knew something knew something was not mm-hmm. right about that, but he wasn't driving the semi. His instructor mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. so he is like, pull the fuck over, pull the fuck over. Mm-hmm. But the driver's like, it's nothing. Like you're freaking the fuck out. Like we're just gotta keep driving. And then you're like, fuck, my gut instinct was yeah, right. He knew, and he knew. And when he was told that they pulled Alan's body out of the reservoir, he's like, I fucking knew. I knew that that was my brother. And their mother, Judy, like, at this point, like, she's in fucking denial, right? Because she just found out her son was dead. So when Mike tells her, like, he saw Alan two days prior to his body being found, she's like, that wasn't him. That wasn't him. Because she probably just didn't want to even think about what had happened to him. When you take into consideration the injuries that he had and the fact that he was in a car with three other Random. You don't have to be a fucking rocket scientist to put two and two together to figure no. out what happened to him. Right. So I totally understand her being like, no, that wasn't him. That wasn't him. Because you're, as a parent, you don't want to think about that happening to your child. Absolutely not. So, understandable that she was I like, I don't even no. want to think about that happening to anybody that I care about. No, like, yeah. So, like, that's horrific. Right. Absolutely horrific. So I don't blame Judy at all for being like, that wasn't him. You didn't mm-hmm. see him. Because she was probably so in denial at that point that she, yeah. she couldn't even Especially think about it. as anything. a mother. Yeah. Like, it's ten times worse. Like, like birthed, that is my baby. I that is my child. This person. Yeah. And I think Alan was the youngest. I think, she, I think he was her youngest. Even worse. Yeah. That was literally, like, her baby. Like, the last baby she had. And she... I wouldn't want to think that about, you know... Are you looking... A bird? Bird is literally giving me the death stare she's right now. Bird she's like right now. Leave her alone. She's she's Goyle soup. That's just her face, okay? <laughs> she has, you know, resting bitch face. Bird has resting angry face. <laughs> Anyways, okay. I'm so, about to go. <laughs> sorry. Anyways, I'm about to go get that wine. Okay. Well, pause. Let me at least finish this this okay. section, and then we can pause and you can go get wine. So, despite the efforts of police to track down Alan's killer, his case, unfortunately, went cold. Mm -hmm. The year after Alan's murder, the Barnes family applied for compensation under the Criminal Injuries Compensation Act, and they were seeking $10,000 each on, plus, you know, costs related to their lawyers and the legal action, etc., etc. Their lawyer outlined the details of Alan's, quote, revolting macabre murder, biting her lip as she told the court that Alan's family had only gleaned the full details of his death from a newspaper article the morning after his body was found, including the detail that his face had been eaten away by rodents. So they found that out from a fucking newspaper article. Could you imagine? Your brother, your fucking child, the police don't tell you shit. But days after they find his body, you find out the details from a fucking newspaper article. That is so sad. Yeah. Like, it's... This case is so... Just... Everything about this is just fucking sad. Horrifying and sad. Yeah. It's, It's really sad. And, like, to make matters worse, like, reasonably, they're seeking compensation because they just went through something really fucking traumatic. Right. It... The information was... Miss like they should have been informed of this information right away. It was very Absolutely. mishandled in that way. Um, but in the media, the Barnes family was being heavily criticized for attempting to make money off of Alan's death. His family, though, believed that a lot of the criticism also stemmed from a judicial officer who had reported that it was possible that Alan's death had been an accident. Are you fucking kidding me? Stemming from a, quote, course of conduct to which the deceased was a consenting party. Are you fucking kidding yeah. me? 
So this judge tried to say that he consented to the shit that happened to him and that it was just an accident. This really goes in line with just the rampant homophobia that was still such a part ingrained in the culture in Adelaide at this time. Alan was not gay. He was not a homosexual man. But just the circumstances surrounding his death, like, oh, he was in a car with a whole bunch of men. He He died because of, like, you know, anal trauma. Well, he probably just consented to the wrong thing. And whoops, he died. It was an accident. And so, like, and then media takes that and they fucking run with it. And so, like, for the family to be seeking compensation for this, they're like, well, why are you seeking compensation? It was an accident. He was just gay. And he hooked up with the wrong people. Oops, you're just a piece of shit. Yeah. I'd be like, and whoops, I just punched you in the fucking throat. Oops. Oops, how about I stab you to death? Whoopsies. Oops. My hand slipped and I slipped my fucking throat. You you consented. You got too close to me. You consented to being this close to me and I stabbed you. What are you going to do? Not that. That's so fucked up. That is so fucked up. All right, well, do you want to pause right here and go get your wine? Okay, we will pause. All right, we're back, and Autumn has her wine. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, wine. We are, what are we drinking? It is, it is, yeah, give him some ASMR, vamp for a minute for me. We are drinking uh, chocolate fantasies from Victorianburg Wineries. Oh, my God, when I was it on that wine tour. chocolate flirtation. When I was on, on that wine tour. For White wine with natural cherry and chocolate flavors added. I could tell, yeah. When I was on that wine tour for our one rambunctious friend um for her 21st birthday and i had taken 13 shots of jose cuervo before i had gotten on the wine bus um that's where i died was that victorian break Victorian yes yeah we went there for die die's 60th wine tour that we did yeah i like this stuff if you it's it's you know what it's more cherry forward than it is chocolate yes. forward i yeah. like that though it's good. but that i took 13 shots of jose before You're getting on the bus wild. and then somebody gave me a bottle of jack daniels <laughs> I literally was like, don't like, you know, it was unopened. I was like, cracked it open and chugged it. There's a, there's a video. I had spilled it on myself. There's a video of her licking it off of my chest. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, dude, I love Jack. That's my favorite liquor, I think. I I was going to get the little, um, when I was at the liquor store, they have those like Jack Daniels gift sets where it comes with a bottle of Jack and then the two glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to get one of those because they were on sale, but I didn't because I already spent all Damn, I might just buy you a big-ass bottle of Jack for your birthday. <gasps> I feel like I know what I'm going to do. I just got an idea. I just got an idea. My mom. I just got an idea. <laughs> that made me think. My mom got me a Christmas present, right? I just got it today. Yeah. Guess what it was? Because I was telling her that I wanted a Crock-Pot. Did she buy you a Crock-Pot? A fucking nightmare before Christmas crock pot. That's amazing. Yes. I didn't even know. <laughs> Me neither. I opened it. I said, oh, that's amazing. I said, it's nightmare so before Christmas I said, it's so pretty. I don't even want to use it. <laughs> I love that. No, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's so fun. She well, said, I'm so excited for you to have it. You're going to love it. We should just do dinner and make something in your crock pot and just have dinner. I want to really, I was, which is crazy because I was just looking up recipes the other day. I want to make a chicken and gnocchi soup mm-hmm. in the crock. Mm. that would be good as fuck we should get a nice wine or drink some of the wine that you just fucking bought and you can make dinner in your crock pot and we'll just have wine and eat dinner we're gonna have to do it when yeah yeah yeah. or you can just bring the crock pot here no because i'm gonna bring it home next weekend sheet 
Oh. So we can well, do it then. Okay. Let's, let's make plans not on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, um, Alan's case goes cold. And then two months after Alan's murder on August 28th, 1979, a man named um, Kevin Ede, or Kevin Eddie, I don't know, it's E-D-E. How would you say that? Ede? Eddie? I would say Ede. Ede? Okay, I'm going to go with Ede. Kevin, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Or like, <laughs> yeah, probably Ede. Probably Ede. It's E-D-E. Ede, Eddie, I don't know. He was on a casual walk um, to the south end of Outer Harbor at the northern tip of the Lefevre Peninsula when he made a very grisly discovery. He had climbed down the rocks on the wharf in order to reach the riverbank, and upon doing so, stumbled across a few black and green plastic bags caught on the jagged rocks about eight feet from the shore. At first, Kevin was like, mm, nah, and he decided to turn and walk away, but something in his gut told him that it was not something he should just leave alone, so he turned around and he went back to them. Um, Kevin very carefully reached down and untied one of the cords that was tying the bag shut. He peels back the plastic, and what he finds absolutely fucking horrifies him. Inside this bag, from what he can see, is a pair of human feet. Oh my god. So, understandably, Kevin immediately calls the police... The police get there, and they haul the rest of the bags up on the shore, inside which they discovered more pieces of a young man's dismembered body. This body was later identified as that of 25-year-old Neil Muir. I'm so sorry. M-U-I-R. Muir, right? Muir? Muir? Neil Muir. I just want to make sure. If I'm mispronouncing that, it is what it is. I don't know how to do words. Yeah, Muir. Muir, right? M-U-I-R. Muir. Um, Neil but was, I also feel like Muir, there should be like an E in there. So I don't know. Muir, 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 Muir. It sounded like that. Muir. Something oh. along those lines. Something along those lines. Neil. <laughs> <laughs> so Neil was from Manum, which was a small town near the south bank of the Murray River. Neil was one of four children, and he was considered to have been the family go-getter, who is basically into almost anything. He was like a jack-of-all-trades. He tried Everything. He always, like, had a hobby. He was interested in new things. He was constantly trying things. He just wanted to kill, like, kind of have, like, a skill in everything. Um, Neil's personality is also said to have undergone, um, unfortunately, a pretty drastic change after the separation of his parents. Um, he became somewhat of a drifter. He was bugging off his friends often. He was delving into drugs. Um, by 15, he was pretty much, like, hooked on the hard stuff. His drug of choice was, that drug of choice was heroin, I do believe. Oh, my God. Um, He was covered in tattoos, and he was often um, homeless, either couch surfing with friends or just straight up living on the streets. Um, He had a daughter with his girlfriend, Carol, whom they named Sonia, but after Mm -hmm. Carol basically just, like, walked out one day and never came back, um, Sonia was adopted to be raised by Neil's mother, Margaret. Though he was not around much in her life, Neil was said to have absolutely adored Sonia when he was around her. Um, he would, like, come back and he would, like, what he really loved to do with her when he was there was, like, hold her and, like, rock her to sleep. And he would sing her the same lullaby, like, every time he rocked her to sleep. So he, like, absolutely adored his little daughter. Um, prior to his death, it is believed that Neil had begun dabbling in sex work as a way to support his heroin addiction. The post-mortem mutilation of Neil's body was very extensive, 
So much so that a man who had worked in the slaughter business was brought in um, by police to give his opinion on the dismemberment of Neil's body. So they brought this man in because they wanted to know if the person who dismembered person or people who dismembered Neil's body, if they perhaps had any experience with how to dismember like an animal or some other corpse, be it. Um, part of Neil's flesh had been skinned off. His limbs were removed in a neat and almost methylated, methyl, oh my fucking God, methodological, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Emily said methodological. Methodological. <laughs> Fuck me, that's a word. Methodological. <laughs> methodological way. Methodological. Drinking champagne and drinking wine while we do this is not a great idea. Emily said methodological. Oh my fucking A, dude. So his limbs were removed in a neat, almost methodological way. Um, it was the opinion of this experienced slaughter man that Neil's body had been dismembered with a saw and was not consistent with somebody who had experience in butchering. Dr. Ross James was put in charge of Neil's autopsy, and he found that while Neil suffered a significant blow to the head, his cause of death was very similar to that of Alan Barnes. He died due to blood loss associated with a ruptured anus with at least three major splits and a number of smaller tears and hemorrhage into the adjacent tissues. So again, massive blood loss due to severe anal trauma. There was no doubt that Neil's injuries were inflicted pre-mortem and were made not with a sharp object like a knife or a scalpel, but from insertion of an instrument such as a tapered capped bottle likely causing the tears in the skin internally. So, like, y'all know the fucking sharp-ass edge of, like, a bottle cap. So they basically raped him with a capped bottle. Neil's body had been dissected and sawed into four individual pieces. There were cuts through the fourth vertebrae in the neck, through the lower back at the level of the fourth lumbar vertebra to separate the pelvis from the torso, and above the knee. His fingers and thumbs were removed, his intestines removed from the abdominal cavity, and any piece of skin bearing a tattoo was shaved off. The arms and the legs were shoved inside the torso, his testicles were removed, his scrotum cut open, penis head detached, and the shaft dissected down the middle. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. And finally, a yellow plastic cord was run up through his detached neck, returning through his mouth, and tied through his ribs, basically to tie his head to his body. Traces of the drug Noctec were also found in Neil's blood. Though Alan Barnes's body was not desecrated in the way Neil's was, there was an undeniable similarity in the injuries that they had suffered, as well as the fact that both bodies were disposed of in or near water. The Major Crimes Unit investigating Neil's murder sought help from criminal profilers who deduced that the crime had been committed by a psychotic killer with possible medical experience, and it was suggested that the mutilation was performed specifically to avoid identification of the corpse. The profile also indicated that the killer would be incredibly sadistic, but able to show a calm, even gentle face to the outside world. In addition, they theorized that whoever was responsible had strongly antagonistic homosexual behavior and is almost certainly single. This 
that was the profile part that absolutely terrified the gay community. They feared that all gay men would be demonized and that gay bashings that had and that the gay bashings that had been so rampant in the earlier part of the decade would return. Um, and one of the most like probably the worst thing that they really feared would happen was that the public would start to link all gay men as also being pedophiles. In early September of 1979, Detective Rod Hunter brought Bevan Von Einem in to be interviewed in relation to Alan Barnes's murder. Bevan had been on police's radar for a couple months after this, or at this point, after they had received a call with a tip to look into him. Um, though police did follow up on this tip, it was not really done in any sufficient manner, um, to the point where police like didn't even bother to like look into the car that Bevan drove. They really just honestly kind of brushed this tip off. Um, during the interview, Bevan was very cool. He's very calm and collected. He denied knowing Ellen Barnes and confirmed that he himself and was indeed a homosexual man. It was Bevan himself that opened the door to discussing Neil, Neil Muir, inquiring directly if Detective Hunter was investigating the murder and even revealing that he knew Neil and had even seen him a few nights prior to his murder or his abduction. Detective Hunter was immediately intrigued and pushed for more information. Bevan told him that he'd seen Neil at the Duke of York Hotel in the company of a man he knew only by the name of Adam. He also said that he and Neil had slept together four years prior, but details of his story were not consistent, and Detective Hunter basically like clocked it right away. He's like, you're lying. You're not telling the truth. You're a liar. You're a liar. Um, unfortunately, though, Detective Hunter was not in charge of the investigation into Neil's murder, um, that investigation was being headed by Detective Lee Haddon, and Haddon had another suspect in mind for Neil's murder, who was a broken-down, alcoholic, 45-year-old doctor with some ugly sexual fetishes by the name of Peter Leslie Milhouse. Um, and we'll discuss a little bit about Peter Leslie Milhouse in part two, because that's where I'm going to leave us off. Oh, for part we're one. done. We're done. We're oh. on part one. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot. There was a lot to talk about. Mm. Yeah, there's three other murders to talk about no two hold on there's we did we did richard we did our or we did alan we did neil yeah there's two other murders to talk about in part two and then we'll also get into the trial of Ben von item and then everything that happens post-trial i think i should be able to condense everything we have left into one part so it'll probably just be a two-parter but yeah I figured I didn't want to go into any more of the murders because that's a lot of, like, brutal shit to talk about in just one part. So, I figured I'd just cut us off there. <laughs> I figured <laughs> as she tips her wine glass. This is a margarita glass. I know, it is. It is a margarita glass. We are drinking wine on a margarita glass. But, yeah, now you totally understand why I had to put that, you know, disclaimer and the trigger warnings of not just rape, but very violent rape and sexual assault, being that every single one of these victims dies due to massive blood loss due to anal trauma. Like, that just sounds like one of the worst fucking possible ways I could think to, like, die. <laughs> I don't know, man. There's a lot of terrible ways to die. I don't know about you, but I do not want to try butt stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that guy on goes i don't know about y'all but i really don't want to try any butt stuff <laughs> and this yeah no i mean ooh, 
there's a way to do it, and this is not the way. You need to go slow and steady and soft, not forceful. <laughs> For any of our friends out there. I don't even there. want it slow and steady. <laughs> don't put it there. That's an out hole, not an in hole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. For any of our friends out there that want to try butt stuff, go slow. Use lots of lube. <laughs> Don't just force things go out to, there. Go to, uh, what's this store called? Um, Spencer's. <laughs> they got they got some lube in there. Don't go to Spencer's to buy your lube. Go to an actual, like, sex like, shop. Get some quality Tell me lube. why I was going to work the other day and the sex store parking lot was full. Really? Yes. <laughs> like the morning? Yes, bitch. What the fuck? Maybe Just so y'all know, sale. there's a sex store like in our town, like on like past it on our way to work type on in our town. Mm-hmm. And it was full. I was like, damn. In like the morning. Yes, I was like, damn, bitch. Maybe they're having a sale on something. Yeah, I've never felt more uncomfortable and <laughs> we are adults we can say that we've been to the sex shop on <laughs> like she whispers when we were there <laughs> anyway i never felt more uncomfortable when we were there and we were at the counter and we were talking about that back room the arcade or mm-hmm, whatever it is and, mm-hmm. she, and this old man comes out from behind there i was like they just you can literally just watch porn in there i literally was just like this literally those back rooms are just made for like sitting and fucking watching porn like that's weird as hell. If you want to be watching porn in public, like, you need to reevaluate your fucking life. <laughs> Please reevaluate your fucking life. But, oh man. All right. We're going to wrap this shit up. Um, if you made it this far into the episode, thank no you for that stuff. Ixnay on the butt stuff. Ixnay on the butt if you made it this far, ixnay on the butt stuff, please. <laughs> Comment below. Comment on Instagram. Just say ixnay on the butt stuff if you made it this far. <laughs> Speaking of, please follow us on Instagram. We are at TSRH Podcast. We just passed 400 followers. Yay! Yo, in the words of Emily, we are famous. We are famous. <laughs> oh my word, it's not famous. No. We literally, honestly, Emily sent me the screenshot, circled 401, sent it to me. I said, oh shit. She texted me back, said, we letter R, famous. <laughs> Okay, but the fact that we went from, like, 99 followers to 400 followers in the span of, like, less than a month is kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. So if you follow the Instagram, hi. We love you. DM us. And also remember, no butt stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done with you. PSA, no butt stuff. (laughs) You can do butt stuff if it's safe, sane, and consensual. (laughs) And no ripping up booty holes. Yes, please. Please don't slow. break your booty hole. Go slow and <gasps> use lots of lube. I've got a story to tell you after we... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, please follow us on Instagram at TSRH Podcast. Um, that's the Goyle. It's opening the door. That's Never mind. not the Goyle. That's yeah, Lucas. That's the Goyle. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording a podcast. That's the end of it's the podcast. We're trying it's to do our exit. It's been a chaotic fucking mess to get to this We're point. in our exit interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, we got to stop this. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Instagram. Send us an email at tsrhpodcast at gmail.com. DM us on Instagram if you want to chat or if you have case recommendations. Or if you want to send us in a listener story, that'd be really cool. Tell us about the weird shit that's happening to you in your life. Um, follow us on Facebook, TSRH Podcast on Facebook. Um, I think Nobody that's everything. <laughs> you say that more fucking time. I'm firing you as co-host. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> no, I really couldn't. I don't want to do this by myself.
so many more. Um, oh my god, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do anything else to people. Yeah, no more booty stuff. Goodbye. <laughs> and please don't eat shit. <laughs> we gotta go. This is a fucking mess. Alright, we'll see you on part two. Bye! Bye. <laughs>